VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbagas, the only baseball podcast in the world emotionally prepared for the Aaron Hicks Orioles bounce back. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Let's see. Let's see some magic, baby. Emotionally overjoyed and excited for the Aaron Hicks bounce back. I think it's the right way to do it. Uh, yes, we are back. We took Memorial Day off. We decided, okay, we maybe we don't actually have the podcast three times a week, but we missed each other so much. And we are Cal Ripken, for, Cal Ripken yes. ashamed of us. <laughs> he should be. He should be. I'd be ashamed of us too. But we hope you guys enjoyed your holiday weekend. We are back here with the baseball podcast. On this episode of Baseball Barbacast, we're going to talk a little college ball. We're going to have our friend Stephen Schock on to talk about the upcoming college baseball regional weekend. Uh, the field of 64 was announced on Monday, and we now know the teams that will be competing to go to Omaha. And if you don't like college baseball or care about college baseball, give it a shot. Think, let's, I think Stephen Schock will, will help convince you. And then uh, in the back half of the show, we are going to talk about, as you mentioned, Aaron Hicks. We are, Jake is going to ask me why haven't uh, players stolen a base yet, which is a, a fun game I'm looking forward to. And we are going to also talk about some prospects, including Ethan Salas, a 16-year-old minor leaguer. But the first part of our show is going to be a little bit different because, unfortunately, uh, one of the biggest stories in baseball right now involves the Los Angeles Dodgers, Clayton Kershaw, Trevor Williams, Anthony Bass to some degree, although we're not going to talk about that very much, and some some backlash involving some Pride Month uh, activities and, and events coming up next month. And I think that the best way to phrase our disappointment as we enter into this conversation is the fact that it is not even Pride Month yet, and we are here we are with Major League Baseball uh, kind of disappointing us in more ways than one. And we wanted to start with this because this is a topic that is is important, first of all, is a topic that deserves a lot of attention and respect and also attention. And again, we have an opportunity to say that we disagree with what is going on here. And so we wanted to take that opportunity to do that. We don't always weigh in on Twitter necessarily, but we think this is an important topic. So Jake, we're, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but we do want to lay out the facts and kind of present yeah. where we stand and, and our perspective on this. May 31st, man. It's Pride Month Eve. Yeah. Pride Month even Eve. There. We haven't even started yet. And we're all, the baseball world is already slightly showing its ass. Not slightly, showing its ass a little bit. So here's, it is one of the biggest stories uh, in sports right now and in baseball is the situation between the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a community organization in Los Angeles and around the country. They were invited as part of the Los Angeles Dodgers Pride Month uh, celebration, their Pride Night. They were, I, I believe, being honored as like a community hero, I think is the term that they were using. Um, they, the Dodgers then like reneged that invitation after backlash from the Catholic community specifically. Mm -hmm. Okay. After, I believe, five days, the Dodgers changed their mind and re-invited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence back into Pride Night, and that has received backlash again, as it did the first time. Now, what are the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, Jordan? Yes. So this is, and again, a lot of good reporting on this. Of course, you can find it uh, on Washington Post. So, so I'll read this from uh, Chelsea Jane's story 
on this situation. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence were founded in San Francisco in 1979 as an LGBTQ plus advocacy and fundraising group. They have since opened chapters across the country and include straight, gay, and non-binary members who dress in brightly colored habits and cloaks, paint their faces, and as the Los Angeles Chapters website puts it, quote, make people happy, stamp out guilt brought on, brought on by a judgmental society and help various organizations and charities. And again, from the AP, the Sisters, a group of mainly men who dress as nuns as a charity, protest, and performance group that was founded in 1979 in San Francisco. And yes, they were planned to receive the Community Hero Award by the Dodgers. Now, as we just said, that that is what they are presenting as. But as they have said very much, the group denied is anti-Catholic. On its website, the group says it uses, quote, humor and irreverent wit to expose the forces of bigotry, complacency, and guilt that can chain the human spirit. Now, the, the point of contention here for a lot of people in the Catholic community is by dressing up as nuns, they uh, it is seen as a mockery of something that is very important to a lot of people, right? That is not something that we understand as Jews, right? Like, that being said, that is where a lot of the, you know, sentiment against the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence is coming from. And I think that is important to understand where it's coming from and why, even though, as we were about to say, we vehemently disagree, like passionately, with a lot of the players who have come out against the sisters being invited. And that includes Clayton Kershaw, who is the Dodgers, and more, you know, pertinently to us is like Trevor Williams of the Washington Nationals, someone who we have known for a long, long time, someone who we consider a friend, someone who I have had many conversations with over the last couple of years about religion and baseball and society, et cetera. And I was, and we are incredibly disappointed saddened and like by what he put out by mm -hmm. the statement that he said. And like, I just think that's important to, mm -hmm. to say and to mention and like create, making sure that baseball is creating a space for people who don't have a space, who people, you know, queer people who don't feel comfortable always coming to games or being a part of this community, anything that like pulls the rope in the wrong direction away from that is just such a problem and just so counterproductive to what this game and this space should be. Yeah, and while people like Kershaw and you know Trevor Williams have focused on specifically saying I don't agree with making fun of people's religions, no one should ever do that. That's what I don't agree with. You know, Kershaw saying it's not about anything else. That's fine, but what's important here is of course to recognize the context, the larger context, not just a baseball or this specific situation and getting bogged down by the details of the back and forth with the Dodgers and the specifics of the group is the larger you know dynamic at play not just in baseball but in the country. And right now, it is not a time to be pushing back in any way against the advancement of rights and comfort for the LGBTQ community in this country, not to mention during Pride Month, of course, at any point. But there is active legislation being made to make these people's lives worse. And when you consider how the existence of Catholics in America, or you know, in most places, like that is the norm, that is the standard. And if the cost of some amount of mockery, and I can understand if it's something you take very seriously, that you can be offended by it, that's okay. I, I guess I disagree with it. But you have to realize the larger situation here, which is that the people in these communities are at risk all the time. And right. the, the uh, youth in these communities are literally at risk all the time. And that is so much more important to both highlight and to empower those groups and to recognize that those groups are in, are in a place of constant you know, marginalization and anything that we are pushing back towards that, even if that is not the intention, is not helpful, counterproductive, and disappointing. 
Trevor specific like his faith and his adherence to his faith in a lot of cases is like the guiding light to his life. And I have no issue with that. The issue here is that in this specific instance, in this topic, it is blinding him and making him unable to see the bigger picture here, to see past the specific situation, to understand that the power imbalance at play is so out of whack, right? And that, and like that is what is so disappointing here because like Pride Month exists and these, uh, you know, Pride events exist because the queer community has been excluded and marginalized from baseball specifically, from locker rooms, right, in within the sport and from stadiums and from our society as a whole. And like statements like this move the entire conversation in the wrong direction. And like it is important to look out for and speak up for the people that are on the the kind of the the more vulnerable side of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um and like the other thing that's so disappointing is like it's just Trevor's like looping himself in with like the wrong side for yeah. lack of a better term. And I maybe it isn't that binary and maybe like we're oversimplifying things here, I don't but like I I feel just so compelled like passionately compelled that it's just so unequivocally wrong. Yeah. And like is regressive and disappointing and misguided and mm-hmm. like it's just oh, man. Yeah, it's it's disappointing yeah. and and that's why we we felt it was important to say obviously we are we are no authority on the matter and there are plenty of people like people in the queer community in the baseball community who feel this much more directly and we encourage that you support those people and listen to those people and but yeah. again like we have to we have to stand up when there there's clearly groups that need to be stood up for and there's ones who will always be in charge and will always be in power and if if any it, I don't believe that Trevor in particular has you know holds hateful views but the outcome here is still a similar and ends up being in the same group of actual dummies and bigots and people who are going to jump in the replies and be like, yeah, you know, hell yeah. Like, no, like that's what we don't want. And that's unfortunate. And that's not, that's, that, that is, that is why we say regressive. And that is why we say we're moving in the wrong direction. And it's like an intention versus impact situation, right? Mm -hmm. Like Trevor's intention doesn't, and like, I guess Kershaw and, you know, a lot of these, I don't want to just put it all on. Like it is, it doesn't really matter. The impact here is that you're making this a less safe space for a lot of people, and that's a bad thing. Yep. So, and I, we hope, we hope, as we we move this along here, we hope that as Pride Month actually begins, and we do know that there are allies in the baseball space, we hope that these events across the league give the opportunity for players to speak up in a positive way and yeah. to communicate that this is should be a space that we want to bring more people into because as you know listening to us that is our goal with anything that we do in baseball is to bring more people in and for people to want to be a part of it so right. we'll leave it at that uh again well, it is, I, it yeah is, i just want yeah. to say like and also like specifically as it pertains to us like we want the people who feel vulnerable and unsafe and unseen to feel comfortable in the spaces that we are creating and like, if we're not ever doing that, and this has happened in the past, like if we're not doing that, let us know, call us out, give us feedback. Like mm-hmm. that's, I don't want to put the the impetus on, on other people and that's mm-hmm. not what I'm trying to do here. But like, we want to be receptive to that and we want to grow and we want to learn. And like, I would say to people who are other straight white, white dudes like us listening, have conversations with people who aren't like you. Like mm-hmm. that's really, 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 really important. 
and listen and learn and read. And hopefully this world of baseball becomes a more welcoming uh, space in 10 years than it is today. Yep. Well said. All right. Uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we return, we are going to bring on our friend Stephen Shark to talk about the upcoming college baseball tournament. I'm James Hinchcliffe, and I co-host Off Track with Hinch and Rossi with my good buddy, Indianapolis 500 champion, Alexander Rossi. With the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500 officially in the books, we will be bringing every single one of you a plethora of entertaining race-related content, including an in-depth recap of the race, driver breakdowns, and overall thoughts from the greatest spectacle in racing. Then, on Thursday night, we will be dropping the final reaction podcast to the 100 Days to Indy series with a couple of special guests. Listen to it on Off Track now on the SXM app or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. I am very excited to be joined by my dear friend and co-host of the Shock Factor podcast, which is now part of the SiriusXM podcast network. It is Mr. Stephen Shock, a.k.a. Big Donkey 47. Hello, Steve. Hey, how's it going, man? I feel like we're in an alternate reality. I'm honored to be here, truthfully. It's been a long time coming. Um, I, in baseball, many people will tell you, you know, don't dwell on how far you've come, but now that I'm washed up, I've been dwelling, I've been dwelling hard. And one of the things I, uh, stumbled upon while Googling my name relentlessly as ball players will do was tweets from you guys. It was a quote on one of your guys' podcast. I think the predecessor to this one, where you were talking to Kyle Peterson mm-hmm. about me and, Man, almost brought a tear to my eye. Talk about a full circle moment. It's, it's so crazy. true. It's so true, Steve. And first of all, before we proceed any further, it's important to note that Jake Mintz, the other part of my podcast and our podcast with Steve, the Shock Factor, will not be joining us for this conversation. He had some previous obligations. I know you're confused because you heard him at the beginning and the end of this podcast. Trust us. This was a worthwhile thing to send Jake off to. He left Steve to me. Maybe he was just tired of recording with Steve earlier this week. We recorded a two-hour uh, regional preview podcast over on the Shock Factor feed. But what this is going to be for people who aren't subscribed to that or don't necessarily follow college baseball that closely is a much more concise and condensed primer for regional weekend because we do love college baseball. This time of year is an incredible time to get into college baseball because this weekend, my goodness, Steve, you will be, it will, it will wash over us in a way that is, is really unlike any other weekend of the entire season. And so we wanted to bring you on Steve to kind of help us, help us prepare for the tournament, especially if you've not been watching, if you've not been locked in and you've not been following all season long, we're going to give you a couple of reasons as to why we think you should. So Steve, before we get into the specifics of this year's tournament, why don't you kind of tell us about where college baseball is right now? What does it look like? What are the rosters are, are kind of made of? And what is an important thing to know if you are kind of getting into college baseball now? So right now, first of all, if you're getting into college baseball right now, welcome. Um, we're happy to have you. We love having you. Um, college baseball has a lot of great fans, so welcome, welcome to that pool of great people. But college baseball at this juncture in time is arguably the best it has ever been. And the reasoning for that is because the pool of talent has gotten so much bigger. And why is it bigger? It's because of COVID and a bunch of different rules that were introduced then that made things a little bit more wonky. But it seems like when COVID was going on, 
every other day that NCA was coming out with some different way that I it was just random news that was gonna make roster sizes bigger. Somehow, yes, some yes. way. It was a combination of additional eligibility for players, which is still relevant now as we are not that far out. There are still players right now who are using their extra year who are older and thus better at baseball. It was the shortened draft. The fact that the draft is shorter means there are fewer high school players that are signing and going into pro ball and fewer college players who are signing and leaving college ball after their junior year and they're staying around for longer. And so right now, when you combine that with the transfer portal, which allows players to move much more easily, whereas previously you had to sit out an entire year if you transferred uh, from one D1 to another, now it is go crazy. You want to go pick it up and... Make your own college baseball free agency, and then we got NIL money given to some of these players and some of these bigger programs. Then go for it. Go find a new place, a coach you like more, a place where you're going to get more playing time. And all of that has combined to, as Steve said, a loaded college baseball pool of talent, which extends not just to the upper levels with the best teams in the in the power conferences, but also to the mid major levels, which I think is very important in this tournament. Yeah, and. This time of year is so special because these teams that you might not have heard of or might not give much credit to can really catch fire. And then you add in these veteran guys to, you know, they might have played at other schools where they didn't get as much playing time, but they got experience going into the postseason. Now they're taking that experience with a ton of playing time compared to what they used to have and bringing it with these smaller schools, which is just such a cool thing to be happening. And, you know, while shortening the draft did hurt a lot of guys, I'm trying to play professionally. Um, me personally, it happened while I was in college, but the play professionally effort level out of me was not really there. Um, was just kind of here to have fun and have a good time while doing it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> also your elbow probably wasn't going to allow that <laughs> to happen. Um, yes. And again, <laughs> I guess I realized I could have just introduced you as the dip and dots guy, but I assume if you're listening and you recognize the voice at this point, yeah, that's, that's who I'm talking to right now. Anyway, Steve, a team that I think people have to know about and maybe have broken through to the mainstream is LSU. And it's for a long time coming into the season. And for most of the season, it was like LSU, best team in the country to best team in the country, best team in the country. They had all these best incredible transfers. They had all these amazing freshmen that they had recruited or underclassmen and juniors that they had recruited like Dylan Cruz. They get some fancy famous transfers like Tommy White and Paul Skeens. But now they come into the tournament as the number five overall seed is number, number, number one. The main thing to know about that is that their pitching besides Paul Skeens hasn't been that good. That's why they kind of fell off. But LSU is a very important part of this tournament. Would you agree? I would I would definitely agree because, you know, you spend however many weeks, probably like 13 weeks of the season at number one overall. There's probably a good reason for that. And you had mentioned Paul Skeens and the pitching staff and that kind of being where they've had some issues this season. And that's honestly the great synopsis of it. You mentioned Paul Skeens. I could go down to my corner store. Odds are. If I walked up to any guy in there who kind of knows about sports, I could be like, who's LSU's Friday night starter? They might say Paul Skeens. They might know it. After yeah. that, and I love LSU. I really like them as a team. But after that, don't really know. Um, <laughs> they, they love you. Know, you. They, LSU loves you too. Yeah, and they have guys, and they have talent. And it's just kind of, are they going to put it together? Because mm -hmm. it's there. All the pieces are there. They made sure of that. It's just... 
how's it going to click? But on offense, they are a juggernaut. We saw LSU in person earlier this year at an early season tournament. And I think one of the big takeaways was their head coach, Jay Johnson, told us something along the lines of like, I have a first round pick, like a future first rounder that I can't find at bats for. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> okay, well, that kind of sums that up. Uh, but yes, their, their lineup is about as fun as you are going to see. But the actual number one team in this tournament Steve, is Wake Forest. Now, Wake Forest is a school that people have heard of. They succeed in other sports. They, It's not like a total no-name school, and they have had some good baseball teams in the past. But this year, they are a juggernaut because their pitching is amazing. Their, pitch, their, their pitching is amazing, which is very rare in college baseball nowadays. And they are the number one overall seed. But what makes Wake Forest so interesting in a historical context is that while they have had success in in you know in the ACC in recent years, we've had them winning seasons, we've seen them in the postseason, they have not been to Omaha since 1955. And now they're the best team in the country by far. And the pressure is on for them to make it to Omaha for the first time since 1955. And while they are certainly not an underdog just because they are that, uh, it does put the pressure on them in a very unique way. And I know you got to spend some time with Wake Forest at the ACC tournament recently. And you're you're a believer in in Wake Forest and, and the, the pitching lab-inspired uh, dominant pitching staff that they have. Yeah, I'm all in on this way for us ball club. Obviously, I, I played in the ACC back in the day, so I'm a little biased. I want to see the conference do better just a little bit more than I want to see other conferences do well. But it it's when you think of the ACC, you think of these schools that, you know, maybe they cost a lot of money. Maybe, maybe they're expensive. Maybe they're richer campuses and more focused on education. Well, this is where the, the two worlds collide because mm-hmm. – you know, they're going to have so many students who go on and like work for driveline work in different fields of college baseball or just baseball in general, because they have this experience. It's going to be like when driveline started and Kyle Bodie was like getting offers from every different organization to be a pitching coach because they can find ways and teach people how to implement this technology in ways that other people can't and don't know about yet. And so it's just really cool to see all of that work come to fruition, the combination of working smarter and harder, because, you know, people will say work smarter, not harder. But if you do both, whoa, watch out. (laughs) That's a a lot of work getting done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is a great, that is a great, great call and a good way to summarize Wake Forest. And yeah, the talent on that team is sensational. But I think that's another big picture thing that I want, you know, casual fans to kind of understand. And I think you can infer this and you see this in other college sports. But indeed, these bigger conferences, namely, especially in baseball, the SEC and the ACC are indeed dominant. 18 of the 64 teams are from the SEC or the ACC, 10 from the SEC, eight from the ACC, eight of the hosts, the 16 regional host sites are SEC teams, which is astounding. Um, but Steve, I, I kind of want to spin this in the other direction towards mid-majors, but do you have any thought about that or, or something else? Oh, I was just going to mention another thing I really like about Wake Forest that's mm-hmm. important to understand about mm-hmm. college baseball is I went, I tweet about kids all year long, so I always feel weird meeting them in person because like, I never know, like, what if they like it and retweet it, but it's just like, oh, well, other people like to retweet it. Like, I think this guy's weird, or I think this guy might smell like cheese. Um, 
or wow, I thought this guy smells like cheese and he does smell like cheese. That's something <laughs> wow. that could I I thought he smelled like cheese and he smells worse. <laughs> yeah. This guy the worst compliment I or the worst thing I can hear from a player is, Wow, you're exactly how I expected you to be. Because the, the way I imagine <laughs> that I have is, I have oh, seen <laughs> I have seen Steve get that compliment many times. Walking with Steve in Omaha last year was like, I mean, it was really, really a quite a, quite a, uh, oh, I think the, my, my favorite thing, again, just total side tangent, but if, if you follow Steve and mm-hmm. you're, my, the best thing is, is Steve, it's like, oh, yeah, I follow you on Twitter. It's like, yeah, no, I know. That's why you, that's why you recognize him. I, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Steve's like, oh. <laughs> But Wake Forest, like, they're just normal dudes. Like, I met them. They're just, like, cool guys. And that's how anyone in college baseball is because, like, you know, there's still, like, people at the end of the day. Like, their best pitcher, Rhett Louder. My favorite – I watched him shove in the ACC tournament. Favorite thing about the weekend from him? I learned he does art. He's really good at it, too. But he's just, like, a normal dude. Like, he's he's walking around the stadium talking to people. Like, that's the main difference, I would say, between college baseball and professional is just the access you have to players. That's why, like, bringing kids to games is such a good idea because, like, every college player sees a kid at a game and, you know, they might get annoyed that they're being asked for a ball over and over again. But at the end of the day, if you ever, like, I saw it a million times where I'd be in the bullpen and a freshman would be like, man, these kids are annoying. And you just look at them and like, I would do this to be a dick mainly, but <laughs> just be like, you were that kid one day. And they would always <laughs> feel horrible because the goof uh, around put them in their place, serious. And then I'd be like, no, 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 no. I totally understand, but it's hilarious how, how like flustered you just got. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So Steve, uh, again, we talk about Wake Forest, talk about LSU. And you know they represent these big conferences, but I would say what I am most excited about in this tournament is the possibility for some of these mid majors to break through. And we're not gonna—I'm not gonna bother to tell you about the, the specific rosters and why these certain teams are so good. And you can go listen to the Shock Factor and D1 Baseball Podcast Network and hear more specifically about them. But if you are the the, the easiest way to sell anybody on on things, okay, who who are the underdog? Who should I? Because obviously, if you're watching the casual play, person tuning in, is not gonna be rooting for LSU. I really that and that's fine if you want to root against them that is also fun the way a lot of people enjoyed rooting against tennessee and it's worth noting with wake forest that no number one only one number one overall seed has won the entire thing since the format was introduced in the late 90s and that's the 1999 miami hurricanes so being number one overall is not even good in fact the last three years the number one overall seed hasn't even made it to omaha let alone win it all but I'm so excited about the possibilities that some of these mid-majors can break through. We haven't had a mid-major that is a non-Power 5. Now, Power 5 is really Power 4 in college baseball because the Big 10 is kind of behind some of these other mid-major conferences. But we have not had a team that's not from the SEC, ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12, or Big 10, in Omaha since 2017, Cal State Fullerton. And I think this year is as good a year as any for us to see it because the way that the bracket shook out we have teams like Campbell, teams like Coastal Carolina, teams like East Carolina, teams like Dallas Baptist, teams like Indiana State. These are teams that have been so successful. And Southern Miss, these are, these are really, really strong programs, but they've never made it to Omaha. But the way the bracket shakes out this year, they all have an excellent opportunity to get there. And I hope at least one of them breaks through because having those unique uh, 
communities and those unique fan bases get to be on the Omaha stage is so much fun. And seeing all those fan bases come together over those two weeks in Omaha is so much fun. And I would like to have a little bit more variety there. And I think we will get a mid-major in Omaha this year. I feel really good about it. And you just have to pick which one you want to root for. And I know which ones you're rooting for, but but that's that is my my and if if you want some help, you know, you can email us baseballbarbercast at, g, g, at gmail.com and I can give you some tips on some teams to to check in on. But that is what I'm most excited about in this tournament. Um, but Steve, if you what if there, what is one thing that you are most excited for or one regional uh, before we wrap this up to to kind of get people excited for this weekend? One regional I'm super excited for. Well, I want I want to touch on what you just said because yeah. that was a great point. Just real quick, I, I can't let it go without saying now. If you're listening to this episode, you're like, "Wow, college baseball sucks." I, I hate this. I don't want to. Why would I ever be interested in that? I only like the pros. Well, I just want to point out Jordan just mentioned the Campbell Camels, which a large majority of people may know. Cedric Mullins played baseball there. Now he plays for the Orioles. Very good at baseball. And you're thinking. Look, again, I'm a professional baseball guy. I'm not interested in this. Like, I want to see who's in our pipeline, who's going to be in the MLB next year. Well, last year, the Campbell Camels played uh, the Tennessee Volunteers around this time. And uh, in that game, we had a young man by the name of Ben Joyce playing against a young man by the name of Zach Neto, who are both playing. They are both teammates with Shohei Otani and Mike Trout this season, one year later. So... Um, playing with entirely different bats. Uh, so yeah, and probably entirely different balls. Yeah, well, we won't get too far into that. The balls might be juiced. Um, there are two point two five home runs per um Division One college baseball game compared to last year, where it was like one point eight nine. Um, home runs are sick. Um, there should be more of them. I'm fine with it. Uh, if you like, if you like seeing preposterously long home runs, if you've ever looked at an MLB guy and gone, wow, I wonder what it'd be like if he had a hunk of metal. There are guys with like big league pop, I would say, like maybe not top end right now because they're college guys right now, but on their way to top end big league pop. And with the metal bats, it is just ridiculous what they can do. Last season, there was a grown man by the name of Griffin Dorshing hit a ball 513 feet. Really fun. I think it broke a building a little bit, like <laughs> broke a chunk off. Um, it Really cool stuff. So it's like you can see some preposterous stuff mm-hmm. in college baseball, and I think there's going to be a good amount of it in the Charlottesville Regional, where mm. my biased self thinks the Virginia Cavaliers will win. But they are taking on Army to open it up, which we talked about the transfer portal to open up this uh, little segment where you let me into your uh, big boy podcast. And and Virginia is one of the, one of their top starting pitchers is Connolly Early, who came in to Virginia from Army. So you transfer from Army. So. It's kind of like they're playing for the love of his heart. It's like loving basketball. It's really just a beautiful <laughs> situation going on there. Yeah, and we have a couple examples like that. Uh, Andrew Lindsay, one of Tennessee's best pitchers, might be pitching against Charlotte, where he transferred from a couple years ago. So I don't know if the committee does this on purpose when they set up these brackets, but it certainly makes it all the more intriguing. And and yeah, I, I agree. I think that, that Charlottesville will be a fun one. East Carolina, certainly one of your favorite mid-major teams, uh, will be uh, in that Charlottesville regional along with Oklahoma, a team we saw in the College World Series last year. I would say the one regional that I'm looking forward to 
is probably Clemson. Clemson, a team that you oh, Clemson, of course, they're good. When they're good at football, they're, they're, they're not good at baseball. Well, they really haven't been that good at baseball recently. They got a new coach, Eric Backich, who came over from the University of Michigan. And in his first year, he won the ACC tournament. They've won, I believe, 16 games in a row going into the tournament, and they will be hosting down in Clemson, South Carolina. And Tennessee, the team that it, you, if you watch college baseball even casually last year, you know all about. You know That team's not entirely the same, but a lot of their best players, certainly on the mound, are still there, and they will be a part of that regional, which I am very much excited for. But what I can say is the easiest way to enjoy this weekend is at 1 o'clock on Friday, turn on Squeeze Play. Hosted by our good friend Mike Rooney, also part of the D1 Baseball Podcast Network, uh, Matt Schick. I mean, I assume Chris Budden, they're going to have the whole squad there. They will do the work for you. Talk about working. That, that is working less hard. Talk about working smarter, not harder. Put on squeeze play. <laughs> they will do. Uh, you will not do any work. You will sit on your couch and they will take you around all the best games and all the best moments of the day. But we hope that this was a good primer. And Steve, how can people uh, follow you? Uh, where could, where, what, what will you be doing this weekend? What is your plan for regional weekend? Um, so this weekend, it's a little cloudy because I coach high school baseball here in Delaware, and the boys may be fighting for a state championship on Saturday. So oh, baby. Uh, we'll tomorrow see. night, I'm going to have to make a very, very hard decision, um, <laughs> potentially. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see. It's looking like Charlottesville Regional, if things go poorly high school baseball wise but if things go well high school baseball wise i have no idea um but if you want to follow me on the interwebs to find out the enthralling answer to what is going to happen with steven shock the dipping dots guy who's washed up with no elbow um in his delaware high school state baseball championship endeavors Follow Big Donkey 47 on Twitter or Steven underscore shock on Instagram where I don't really post. I don't even know why I plug that one. If Stay, I'm being the, honest, we're friends because we're the same, right? We didn't really post on Instagram, even though we should. <laughs> it's like, it's there. It's I've posted like three baseball clips and each of them probably have like a hundred thousand views. Right. I should, I should definitely, all the signs are like, Hey, post on me. But he's too, he's too busy uh, making hats and sending <laughs> tweets. And if you wondered, right, if you ever saw that clip of Steve or you, you see his tweets come up and you say, like, what's that guy's deal? Just know we uh, not so humbly endorse this man as our friend, as our podcast co-host. We hope you listen to us with Steve on the Shock Factor podcast, which we couldn't have had if he didn't have such a convenient name to name a podcast. So thank you to the Shock family going back as many generations as it is. Um, but thank you, Steve, for joining me on, on this episode of Baseball Barbacast, not the Shock Factor, which, of course, we will bring back next week. Uh, any final words before I send it to break, Steve? No, I think I think we got a good break coming. Um, I heard Motley Crue might be here for it, um, so we'll see. But thank you so much for having me on here. If you do choose, if this... If this episode has flipped you and you're like, wow, now I love college baseball, mm -hmm. that then know that my life is complete. So if that happened to you and you feel compelled to tell me, just know that might run the risk that I'm like, all right, time to time to go live by the stream just in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. Just just know that I will be honored from that. But also you run the risk of turning me into a recluse. Um. All right. Well, on that very reasonable note, we will send this to break <laughs> and we will be back afterwards with Jake Mintz. He will be back to finish out the podcast with me. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. 
And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. No more college for us. We have graduated. And now it is time to discuss Major League Baseball, which I believe is growing in popularity all across this great nation. We have not podcasted for a while. I guess we took one day off, but it feels like forever. Let's hop in to the very bizarre and fascinating situation involving the San Diego Padres television distribution. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so this is a, a story that we have not covered too much on the podcast, but it is definitely an important one. And it involves how Major League Baseball games are broadcast. If you have MLB TV and you're bouncing around to a bunch of different games uh, over the course of an evening, you know that not every game is necessarily broadcast by the same company. Some teams like the Yankees, you know, have their own network and that, you know, simplifies things in some senses. But there is one group, a one large conglomerate company known as the Diamond Sports Group, which owns what is known as the Bally uh, Group of Networks. And that is not going so well for Diamond Sports Group. Yeah, we are not going to get into like the, the specifics of that. But what you need to know is that the money is running out and there has been a little bit of bankruptcy. As, uh, as it is said. And what that has led to is a situation where this company is unable to make the necessary payments to the teams for the broadcast rights. And what that means is that the teams are then allowed legally to, bro- to take alternative measures to broadcast their games. The Padres are the first team now where uh, they have not been paid I believe, like past a certain date. Mm -hmm. And so starting tonight, Wednesday night, games are going to be broadcast by the Padres in a way that like we have never seen before Mm -hmm. in MLB. Right. Which most notably will include MLB basically taking over the production and distribution of these games in a way that will allow San Diegans to watch on MLB TV with a certain package with no blackouts. Uh, because the, the reason that blackouts exist is because the companies who are paying, or at least when they are paying, paying a lot of money to have, <laughs> theoretically, when they are paying, have a lot of money, paying a lot of money to be able to have the rights to broadcast these games in these markets, they do not want you to have to be able to kind of jump over that uh, that barrier that they have made and thus stop you from watching it through other alternative means, aka MLB TV, in the market. However, in this case, when that is not that is not the situation, MLB is going to, with obviously a deal, it's not going to be suddenly free, but with it, you can buy a specific Padres package. I am interested in this because there are other, obviously plenty of other teams with Bally, and the fact that the Padres were the first team, and this I'm sure involves stuff that I don't entirely understand, but the fact that the Padres were the first team for them to not pay, whereas like they did pay the Reds, they paid some of these other teams that are going to keep it, is, is, is kind of odd and and funny to me and almost another funny chapter in this weird Padre season. Yeah, because there was like a quote or a statement from someone with Diamond Sports that was like the Padres specific financial agreement like is not feasible for us at this current point in time, blah, blah, blah. If the Padres were like the best team in baseball, do they make the payment? Maybe. I don't know. But what's weird about this is it is a very bizarre time Mm -hmm. to go to Padres fans and say, all right, $7.99 for the season. $79.99 79.99 for the season. Because if I'm a Padres fan, I'm like, oh, well, our run differential is zero and we're eight games back at the Dodgers. And I don't want to think or watch the Padres at all right now until yeah. they figure it out. True. But also, <laughs> as I have made the point about MLB TV, and if you think I'm shilling for the league, that's fine. 
LETV is an absolute steal. I know it is expensive. Yeah. Like, the, it is literally thousands of games. I mean, yes, easy to say for us because we're literally watching multiple games every single day. But I think what's important here is, again, you can see this on MLB.com. It says, the new arrangement, which gives fans the options to watch on television or stream digitally, expands the reach of Padres games from, approx- from approximately 1.13 million homes to approximately 3.264 million homes in Padres home television territory. The increase of 2 million point uh, one homes marks a 189% jump in reach, which is like, yeah, duh, okay, well, why is this, well, why we're also mad at well, blackouts? We want more people to watch the Padres. We want more people to watch all these teams. So it's like, duh. And now it's obviously more complicated than just doing this in every single market. But if we are heading in this direction, there could be an obvious benefit, at least in the short term. At some point, it might end up all costing what it was before and being more complicated and being more messy. That's true. And obviously, there are some markets where this is never going to happen because of how strong the television deals are. But the basic outcome here, I think, is an obvious positive, even though, to your point, it is a funny time to be like, hey, buy this package to watch the Padres, who are really disappointing. Well, yeah, and it's funny because MLB is saying the, la- the loud part out loud where they're like, this is a better setup so that more people can watch <laughs> baseball while also maintaining the blackouts. Now, I genuinely believe that Rob Manfred wants to get rid of blackouts. Now, he is beholden to a variety of other financial realities and ownership and these TV companies, I think all things equal, he would get rid of them, right? And so I think it is a good thing that MLB is recognizing that this type of setup, while maybe a little bit more confusing and complicated in the short term, is going to result in more people having the ability to watch baseball. And that is a good thing. Hmm? Speaking about baseball, related to baseball, let's talk about Aaron Hicks. (laughs) Aaron Hicks, uh, Aaron Hicks, San Diego native, right? Uh, I know yeah, he has a new, I know he has a new a new team now. Um, but uh, you know, if maybe he's a Padres fan, he can now watch the the Padres much more easily if he is if he's living in in San Diego. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Orioles have been. I know they won last night, but they have uh, had a, an interesting uh, little stretch. But most notably, their arguably best player, or at least top two player from this season, Cedric Mullins has gone down with an injury. Now, we hope that it is not serious, but it is serious enough for the Orioles to dip into the uh, free agent pool in May, which is not normally the time you dip into the free agent pool and pick up the recently DFA'd Aaron Hicks, a Mm -hmm. switch hitter who is still switch hitting and still playing center field. And uh, Aaron Hicks, he already has a little bit of facial hair. We'd love to see that. His face has been liberated from the Yankees' no facial hair policy. And obviously, when you see famous guy DFA'd and any team, there's going to be a reaction. Signed, you know, he signed before Eric Hosmer, um, so that stands out. He's, you know, give him credit for that. But I think you put it well yesterday when we were talking about this, because I'm sure people want to hear from you uh, in terms of what an Orioles fan is really feeling about this move and how important it is, one way or the other. Yeah, I mean, I I see it as a as a as an upside only move. If Aaron Hicks sucks, continues to suck for three weeks, and then the Orioles jettison him and they figure something else out, like, okay, whatever, fine. But the upside here is that Aaron Hicks is like 80% of what he once was, mm-hmm. and the Orioles just were like, thanks, yes, please. And being around Aaron Hicks in the Bronx this year, it is obvious that he was miserable, mm-hmm. miserable. He was having a bad time at the office every day. He was detached. He was like emotionally distant. He was um, he was just like, 
out of it, understandably, because he was being booed every single day and it just wasn't fun for him to come to work. This is a fresh start, classic change of scenery situation. Do I think he's going to be good? No, I really don't. But if he is, that's great. And if he's not, the Orioles will, you know, call someone else up or sign someone. The problem is if they like just keep him on the roster for the rest of the season and he's taking away at bats for no reason. Like that's that's when it becomes an issue. I don't foresee that happening because the Orioles aren't really paying him anything here, right? Yeah, no, it, that's the, the, the it's very, very low risk for sure. Uh, Mike Elias had an interesting quote uh, when asked about why they, they had this. And he said, we have stuff that we look at from a scouting and evaluation perspective that, as I've said before, is very different from just looking at the back of a baseball card. And we hope we get a bounce back from anyone that we bring in. Which so, is, yeah, I can expand on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. The Orioles love swing decision guys. Mm-hmm. They love players who make the correct decisions. And what that generally means is swinging at good pitches and taking bad pitches. Aaron Hicks is like a Gunnar Henderson level passive player, right? Where he he's like a never swing guy. And the Orioles think that that is something that they can work with, that they can help him mechanically because he has the things that are hard to teach. He has a great eye. Right. And that is the type of thing that they as an organization really do focus on. Right. Mm-hmm. And feel like is a part of what they do well. And so it does kind of make a little bit of sense. Now, do I think he can be a good defensive center fielder still? Eh, not really. Um, yeah. But it remains to, yeah. also <laughs> at some point you do have to impact the baseball when you do swing. Uh, of course. But <laughs> which which Aaron Hicks has been doing very limited uh, recently. But to your point, low risk. Who cares if it's if it's good? And and I think as you said yesterday, the one homer that he hits will be really cool. That's a good way oh, to yeah. think about this. If if he can contribute to one win in the Orioles season, that will be great. Because you know what that one win will be? One win that the Yankees didn't have. <laughs> so like that's if you if you're contributing in any sort of direction towards beating the Yankees, whether it is against the Yankees directly or competing in the ALA standings, that is a huge win. So not that big of a deal, but I understand why people are like, whoa, Eric's on the Orioles. It turns out that the only way to escape Cedric Mullins is a strained right groin. Yes, Jordan. yes. That Cedric, is the- it's not Cedric Mullins again. <laughs> it's not, it's oh, it's Aaron Hicks. He he flew out to right. I can escape him. I can, I can escape, escape, I can escape him. Uh, also, for those listening who personally grew up with Aaron Hicks in Long Beach, California, I apologize. I don't know why I thought he was a San Diego native. For some reason, I had that in my head. So apologies to the Long Beach native, whether he was a Padres fan or not. Who's to say? All right. Let us move on to some great news. Jake Liam Hendricks is pitching a Major League Baseball game. This is just like kind of a... like. First of all, wow, uh, medical marvel research that we are able to get people who are diagnosed from of you know cancer five months later back in a major league mound is amazing. So that's incredible. And I'm sure Liam Hendricks would tell you the same thing about his experience during his treatment. But this is awesome. Of course, we've followed this, this story and, and everybody has been had been rooting for Liam. And and also it was just like watching. It was like, oh, yeah, that's that is someone. I know his first outing didn't go super great, but it was still like, Oh yeah, that's that's Liam Hendricks. He is a very important part of this team, and it might be a little bit too late for them, but it is uh, it is still cool to see him back out there, regardless. Yeah, Liam Hendricks beat cancer, and now he has an even more daunting task, which is making the White Sox good. Not really. Like it, it, it is as simple as this. He is back. He is on a mound. It is delightful to see the fact that he is healthy. Forget about baseball. Like the fact that he is healthy this quickly is really just like a gift. Yes. Right. It is yes. amazing. 
And yes. to see him on a mound and to see him like, uh, it, it appears that he has an, an increased level of appreciation for, for what he has and what he is and what he's able to do. And that is wonderful. Um, even though like the path that took him to this place was obviously less than ideal. Uh, right. It is certainly inspiring to see him back on a mound. Also, his wife, uh, Christy Hendricks, who, of course, has been a big part of this journey with him. But her in the first outing, like getting slow-mo shots of her like MFing the umpires was incredible. I love that. That is, that is that's exactly the kind of support that she is going to continue to, to give to Liam. Because like, I, has this experience mellowed Liam Hendricks out on the mound? Like, is he going to not curse anymore? I, I, doubt I doubt it, it right? <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Uh, which is great. So congrats to Liam. Very good to have him back. All right, couple, uh, speaking of beating the odds. Oh, there we go. There's a good transition. Two marvelous home run feats we wanted to mention. One is that Jose Abreu hit one. Wow, <laughs> that shouldn't have been news. Um, but uh, as our uh, vice president once said, uh, we did it, Jose. We hit a home run. Uh, Jose Abreu hit a home run against the A's. He came bolting around the bases. I believe he gave us the fastest sprint speed on a home run this season and possibly of like fastest sprint speed of Jose Abreu's life. I don't know (laughs) how this measures to him, you know, going first to home on a double, but I mean, he was, he was booking it. He was smiling. He was borderline laughing. He was uh, gleeful, relieved, of course, that he finally poked one over the fence after signing with the Astros and being one of the worst hitters in baseball. Has that turned his whole season around? Probably not. He had a near grand slam last night uh, to right field in Houston against Minnesota that was caught at the wall. And I was like, oh, that that could have been the second one. But uh, for now, uh, we will celebrate the one home run that I will not have to ask Jose Abreu once again why he hasn't homered yet. Him sliding in, essentially sliding into the dugout was incredible. It was just all around uh, delightful. And it's one of those things where it got to the point like, if this had happened in maybe even the first week of May, I think he would have been more like, oh, okay, fine. That's good. But this was like joyous. This was like, I can still hit home runs, and that feels good. The It, it kind of reminded me of the scene in Angels in the Outfield where like the players are carried by the Angels, right? And they are being <laughs> lifted. Like To see him sprinting that fast around the bases felt like a physical anomaly that you know there was like Matthew McConaughey, or like when Matthew McConaughey is lifted. Right, it was like there has to be an extraterrestrial metaphysical force propelling Jose Abreu this quickly. There has it, to be. It was great. It was great. Uh, and then the other one that was just is shocking in terms of the likelihood of this happening was Jack Sawinski, who sneaky ridiculous pop for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates in his second year. Now he does strike out a lot. Defense a little bit inconsistent, but a fun player. You know, someone they got in, in the trade from San Diego. Uh, a couple years back, but Jack Sawinski did something that I believe only uh, Barry Bonds has done. Yes, and that is hit, hit two splash hits in one game in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh, what am I saying? In San Francisco for Pittsburgh. And this is incredible because, first of all, it does sort of make sense because if we were making, like, this is, if you watch Jack Sawinski hit home runs, this is usually what they look like. Right, to have a splash hit. To hit it into McCovey Cove from home plate all the way out over the fence, past that walkway and into the water, it's not just about hitting a home run. It's about hitting a big boy home run. And Jack Sawinski's home runs are big boy home runs. They do not scrape the wall. 
right? There was a difference between hitting one out to right and hitting one into the water. Mm-hmm. I think we love the splash hits in San, in San Francisco. It's something that we talk about a lot. There, a right-handed hitter has never hit one. And that is like one of the most, like I'm waiting for that moment. It's going to be great. I Again, that was a big part of why I would have been somewhat excited for Aaron Judge to go to San Francisco. I think that would have made it a real shot that we could have seen something like that. And whenever Pete Alonso plays, it's a very short list of, of right-handers, hit, right-handed hitters. But again, Jackson Winsky's perfect to do it, but, but to do it twice in one game is is remarkable. It's remarkable. Now, it, it's worth saying that you know the second one was off of a position player. So... Does that make it a little bit less exciting? Yes, but also there have been probably other situations where someone could have done it off a position player for the second time, and they didn't. And Jack Sawinski did, and he took he seized the opportunity, and we love it. Jordan Schusterman, before we do a little bit of prospect chat, I have a game for you. All right. Now, on this show, you will play Why Haven't You Homered Yet with me, mm-hmm. okay? And I have to say why a player hasn't homered yet. But today, we're going to flip the script, and we're going to play Why Haven't You Stolen a Base Yet, oh. okay? Okay, how are you sorting this? I'm excited to hear. Uh, most games played without a steal this season. So, okay, so just games played. All right, so we're not. And I'm not going to go like... to the top of the list because, like, there are some obvious ones, right? Like, so like Austin Riley. Mm-hmm. Austin Riley is really good. He has not stolen a base. Yeah, that's that is understandable. That's right. Fine. Kyle <laughs> Schwerber, Jose Abreu. I'm not, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here. Jose to ask Abreu speeds there. We see the speeds in there, so maybe he can. If he is going to, you know, help his overall numbers, that might help for Jose Abreu to snag a bag. But I'm going to begin with Mike Trout. Mike Trout has played in 52 games this year. He has zero steals. Mike Trout, why haven't you homered? Why haven't you stolen a base yet? Well, I think you just kind of gave away the answer there, which is that Mike Trout's played 52 games and has been uninjured. And I don't think he's going to risk any sort of busted. Th- as we already, we've literally seen this happen. You know, a, a broken thumb or a hand injury getting stepped on or some sort of thing. It's just not worth it. And while what's disappointing is that his OPS plus is only 138, uh, he's still playing every day. And the Mike Trout playing every day is better than Mike Trout stealing a base and then not playing every day. So I think that's the calculation there. Adley Rushman has played in 54 games. He has thrown out many people trying to steal bases. However, he has not taken one himself. Adley Rushman, why haven't you stolen a base yet? If I'm Adley Rushman, I have done so much to yeah. impact Orioles winning. This is my one thing where it's like, y- you guys handle this part. And it's not like the Orioles haven't been running, right? That is just not, th- that's another thing where it's like, I am not, he's probably actively hurting the team if he is attempting to steal in that case. And Adley's smart enough to know it is not worth it. And there are other guys on the team that can step up and steal bases for him. Colton Wong. Why haven't you stolen a base yet? You stole 17 last year. You stole 24 in 2019. And now we have these big old bases, and yet you have not taken one. Colton Wong, why haven't you stolen a base yet? This one is also pretty uh, easy. Uh, You say he had 17 steals last year, right? Yeah. Um, And what is it? You have to get on base to steal, right? Mm. That's important. Mm. Colton Wong has 17 hits this year, Jake. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. he has... Any time that Colton Wong has reached base, uh, you know, the 250 OVP, there's kind of this moment of like, holy shit, like he, there we go. We did it. We got on base. This is awesome. It's like seeing it's, a celebrity in the wild. Seeing yeah, the and it's like, oh, my God. And so you kind of have to take that in before we're even thinking about, like, I, 
I'm on the, you know, I reached base. I don't want to get off the base. And I, and I, the thing about Cole Wong is I believe he doesn't have any, but I believe he attempted one because I remember him either getting picked off or, or, or caught stealing. And again, it's like those trips to the bases now are unfortunately so rare. He's not going to risk having those trips shortened. Two more. Jackie Bradley Jr., who has played a lot more than you realize for the Kansas City Royals this year, he hmm. does not have a stolen base. That feels like the whole point. Jackie Bradley Jr. I, I guess, but I don't. I'm curious about what what are what were his like high steal totals with Boston? I, I honestly don't even really remember. Um, like, because that's, I don't, a, that's true. He really actually didn't run a whole lot. 17 was the most he ever had in a year. Yeah, but zero. And, yeah, no, I mean, I agree. You would think that there would be, that that would be part of his game. Although JBJ has always come across to me as he is a kind of a naturally gifted instinctual outfielder more than like, holy shit, he's running it down. And so yeah. I think he's probably more of a plus runner than like a, I can right. steal bases. But yeah, zero. I mean, that's especially for the Royals when you're trying to scrap. The offense is so bad that anytime he's on, he should be running. I, that is a little bit surprising. Speaking of the Royals, the man with the most games played without a steal is oh. Vinny Pasquantino. Oh. <laughs> friend of like, the oh, Salvi. program. I mean, this program. is he's I mean, he's basically told like he he is a self-proclaimed slow lad. And Vinny also is another situation where, again, you mentioned the the Royals and their offense. They cannot afford to have guys leaving the bases earlier than normal. Uh, and Vinny is doing his part to get on base. And for a team with an OBP under 300, you know, Vinny's is, is 343. Like, why would they ever be like, hey, dude, we're going to need you to maybe get thrown out? Like, no, it's not going to happen. Although, he did, did he did he have one last year? Did he had one, right, like trailing, and that was like a, a huge deal? He had like a, like a like on the back, like it was a second and third steal, and he was stealing second or something like that, uh, <laughs> if I recall. But that'll probably be his first and only. And honestly, if I would guess, Vinny would like to keep that sewing base percentage at 1,000 for his whole career. And I think he could. I think he could there. That's all we got for Why Haven't You Stolen a Base Yet? Tune in next month and we'll keep this thing rolling. We're going to get out of here in a second. Before we do, Jordan, you want to talk about one or two prospects? Yeah, Prospect Corner. We've uh, brought this uh, up in, in some past weeks. And I just think this has been a super fun week for prospects. Can and we I change sh- the name of this? I don't want to put the prospects in a corner. Can we do Prospect Pedestal? Ooh, that's way better. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great improvement. Great production there. That was impressive on the fly uh, spontaneity there from, from my co-host. I agree. Prospect Pedestal. Who are we putting on the pedestal? This week, and and not like ironically, like this is a genuine put them up on a pedestal. I did, this is not a bad thing at all. And the first one is, is obvious. It's Ethan Salas. We talked about him in spring training when he was playing in Major League Spring Training games. This is a, a Venezuelan catcher who signed for over $5 million for this, with the San Diego Padres in the new January international signing period. This dude does not turn 17 until tomorrow. And I think that that's a relevant point because I have a feeling that the Padres, who clearly were going to be aggressive with Salas this year anyway, were like, you know, it would be cool if he goes and plays a minor league game while he's still 16. And they did that, and he got two hits in his in his affiliated debut last night. All the reports of this kid coming out of the backfields are ridiculous. He's got, I mean, the, the bat alone is impressive, but the fact that he is like a competent and strong defensive catcher is also amazing. He's, I mean... The fact that he's turning 17, that means he would be a 2025 draft potentially, maybe 2024 draft if he was a high schooler. 
but this is a marvelous achievement. And I, I can't like we had Julio Urias pitching at 16, I believe when he signed out of Mexico, he was definitely pitching in, in low a, I think at 16, but a hitter, I cannot remember seeing this. I cannot remember seeing this. We've had some 17 year olds. We've not, I cannot remember seeing a 16 year old. This is amazing. And, and it is part of a theme of a couple other plays we can talk about that some organizations are like, if you can ball, we're just going to keep pushing you. We don't care. Service time manipulation, be damned. Even if it's in the minors, forget getting the majors. Like, if we believe in you, why are we going to waste the time to have you torch DSL pitching? Like, we think you can also, if you're the Padres and you clearly are desperate for catching solutions sooner rather than later, do I think Ethan Sal is going to be a big leader this year? No. Do I think that they would like him to be the catcher maybe by the time he's 18 or 19? Yes, clearly. That's the thing here, right? It's very easy to say Padres have no catcher. They have a 17-year-old kid in low A. Will it happen? No. I would like to write an article like, here's why this was never, ever, ever, ever going to happen. <laughs> However, it is certainly fun to think about. Any other guys you want to talk about? From- well, again, the Padres are not the only ones. The Angels are basically sending guys that they just drafted. Of course, Ben Joyce, Zach Neto from last year. I do want to talk about Ben Joyce for a second. Because what was so funny about the people reacting to Ben Joyce's debut, and this is the very hard-throwing reliever that they drafted out of the University of Tennessee. He got a lot of attention last year because he reportedly threw a ball 105. I believe it was probably more like 103, 104. But the point is, he is certainly one of the hardest throwers in the world. And the funniest thing about the tweets about his debut was it was like only a year after he was drafted, Ben Joyce is throwing 102 in his debut. And the phrasing made it seem like he somehow was, he was throwing 93 last year and through just like 10 major minor league innings, he has developed this incredible velocity. It's like, no, that's, this is the whole, that's, that's Ben Joyce. That's the point. Like it's like, yes, it is crazy that they push him this fast, but also not because this is exactly who you would expect to push this quickly. This is exactly, if they had sent him to the big leagues last year, I wouldn't have been that surprised. And so that's the part where I'm like, that's the development here is not a part of the <laughs> velocity story. He had zero saves at Tennessee in college. No. Will he get one in the majors? <laughs> uh, I think probably. Again, the Angels right now are are in full-blown, like anything that we think we can help you, it can yeah. help us win any amount of games. We will do that. Neto has been awesome lately. So obviously there's versions of that that can work out. His listed nickname on his baseball reference page is the Volunteer Fireman, which is awesome. Wow. I've somehow never heard of that. That is fantastic. Uh, we love that. Um, and then again, just sticking with the theme of, of young guys, the Braves just called up A.J. smith Shaver. Now, he's not necessarily a huge prospect name, but he's born in November 2002. He will now be the youngest player in baseball, five months younger than Jordan Walker, a whole year younger than Francisco Alvarez, who is currently the youngest player in baseball since Jordan Walker is in AAA. And this was a high school pitcher two years ago. And he was like, a, I believe he was a hitter most of the time throughout his amateur career and then moved to the mound full time right before his senior spring. And he's just been amazing this year in AAA. It honestly reminds me of the year that he's had this year reminds me of Dylan Bundy. Uh, when Dylan Bundy did, except with way fewer innings. And obviously, we know that that's not necessarily going to pretend amazing career success. But the point is, is this is unbelievable aggression from the Braves. And it's just so funny because the Braves have been, everyone who follows this stuff knows that they have a bad farm system. And I think that that's true, but they don't care. They're like, oh, this is the one guy that we believe is talented. Great. Okay, well, he'll just come help our big league team because what use is he in for the Gwinnett Stripers? None. So very interested by that one. Enough podcasting. Let us continue with our day and let you do the same. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Stephen Schock for coming on the show. 
Thank you to Chris Tyler for producing. Thank you to Jordan Schusterman for co-hosting. You can email us whenever you want. Like, we'll read them. We will. Thank you. Baseballbarbercast at gmail.com. That's B-A-R-B-Cast. And we will be back on Friday. And Jake will not be in America. Stay tuned, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Serious XM Podcasts.